This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Today, I'm bringing you a conversation I had with Ryan Murdoch for his Personal Landscapes podcast. He was kind enough not only to chat with me about my book, The Hill of the Skull, on his podcast, but he let me rebroadcast the conversation here. We talk about sacred mountains, anthropology, Bolivia, globalization, pilgrimage, and other topics. If you aren't subscribed to Ryan's podcast, I recommend that you do so. Just search for Personal Landscapes in your favorite podcatcher or visit personallandscapespodcast.com. In personal news, the crowdfunding campaign for The Hill of the Skull is entering its last two weeks. We've raised about a third of the funds needed to publish the special edition book. So if you're in a position to support the campaign, please consider doing so by visiting travelwritingworld.com forward slash skull which will redirect you to the Kickstarter campaign page. There you'll find several ways to support the book. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Ryan Murdoch on the Personal Landscapes podcast. Okay, so let's start with place. Why Bolivia? Well, it's uh, just a fascinating country. It's a country that I never really explored, but I read a lot about. It was it was kind of like a an unknown to me. It was a just a fascinating place for for me to visit. Um, on, that's on one level, but on another level, last August when I went to Bolivia, I was on sabbatical, and the timing was nice because in Bolivia in August, this is kind of like a a month of of celebrations, especially in the mountain towns, um, celebrations you know in honor of Pachamama, Mother Earth. And I was, I am still doing a project about mountains. And so the timing was nice. It's kind of remote area, hard for me to get to. Um, I'm on sabbatical. I have a glut of time. So Bolivia was kind of like the logical place for me to go for my research and, and, and for, for my sabbatical. So you describe Bolivia as a world where your assumptions are hard to hold on to and easy to let go of. What did you mean by that? You know, I think when we travel to a place for the first time, and like a lot of people do like background research and background reading before they go and they have, you know, certain assumptions about the places where they visit. And I certainly did uh, about Bolivia, like I had a, a mental image of um, what it would be like. Um, and, you know, in the process of traveling, I mean, this is one of the great things about traveling is that all of your assumptions about place um, and people and culture kind of go out the window. It's like the truth and reality is is far more complicated and interesting and nuanced than, you know, any of the books uh, will, will, will tell us. Um, but, you know, in Bolivia um, and, and, and indeed like the region around around the Andes, like, you know, we have assumptions about about religion and uh, and culture. And I, I think those things were um, were tested quite a bit, especially around the religious tradition aspect in Bolivia. I mean, the, the assumptions that I had, you know, going into it is that, yeah, this is a Catholic country. It's a very, you know, devout, deeply Catholic cult country. And I, and what I imagined was, you know, a kind of a pious official uh, Catholic um, country. But what I, what I got in return was something far more, far more complicated a mixture of uh, religious traditions in, in Bolivia was fascinating and something that I wasn't uh, really prepared for out of ignorance of my own, you know? So you said that sacred mountains were a big draw for you. First of all, what is a sacred mountain? Like this concept seems to pop up everywhere from Shintoism in Japan to high altitude Inca sacrifices or even high places like that above um, mm -hmm. Petra and Jordan. So what's a sacred mountain and what interested you about them? And why did you choose to visit this one in particular? That's a good question. And it's, you know, a question that I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around. Like I'm working on a larger research project about you know, mountains and sacred mountains and things. This is just a um, an idea. I don't know if this holds any weight, but I'm I'm thinking about like the history of ideas and you know the spread of ideas, and it's just fascinating to study history and culture, you know, around the world and 
you know, you, you have this idea of sacred mountain kind of pop up across cultures, across land, across time, um, you know, and in every continent, it, it seems that, um, you know, the peoples and the traditions and histories have, have this understanding of, about sacred mountain or, you know, mountains associated with spirituality or, or, or the divine. I, you know, I was wondering if, if there are any, in, you know, innate ideas, like I wonder if perhaps sacred mountain might be one of them, just because we see it's, it's so widespread, ubiquitous across uh, religious traditions and, and cultures. It's, it's everywhere. And I think, you know, you asked what the idea, what is a sacred mountain? It's a, it's a mountain that, you know, has some sort of spiritual or divine properties to, to a people. I'm also thinking about like literature here too. And if we think about like some of the oldest literary texts, indeed, like the oldest literary texts, the Sumerian cuneiform texts, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, these, these, these ancient texts, you know, in these, in these old writings, like we have this idea of um, mountain as, you know, a place where if it's not a divinity in and of itself, it's certainly a place where we can conspire with, with the gods, right? It's, that's really fascinating to find kind of a, a very similar idea. So, so diffuse uh, around the world. Um, you asked uh, why Bolivia also. Bolivia is is kind of synonymous with with the Andes and with with mountains. Part of what's interesting about Bolivia culturally is it's that it's it's quite enclosed, right? It you know it's landlocked. You know it's one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, certainly in in the world, no doubt. And this might sound weird, but there's like the sense that Bolivia is kind of resisting outside ideas and in globalism in ways that some of the other countries around the world aren't. So um, the, the idea that, you no, know, there's this pure kind of idea or this pure culture in Bolivia is not what I'm trying to say, although it certainly sounds like it. But I was, you know, wanting to get to a place where I could investigate, you know, this idea of mountain in a country in, in a country and within a culture that is not pure, but, you know, is still retaining some of the old ideas, if that makes sense. I guess Bolivia is sort of a marginal place. Like it's apart from the the mining industry that's that's came in and took great advantage mm -hmm. of it because it's so poor and cut off and at such high altitude there's a chance for traditions to linger on much longer in these places than places that are more attractive to outsiders to come in and swoop everything up yeah there's there's something there i mean you know i think it's wrong to think that bolivia is like this untouched place you know that's kind of resistant to globalism although maybe there's a little bit of truth in that um but it is you know certainly remote i mean you can go up into the Altiplano, you know, like the highlands, the high plateau area, and it's just sparsely populated. You know, it's kind of a high altitude wasteland in many respects. There's, you know, vegetation, it's hard to grow up there, very few people. It's, it's a harsh and inhospitable, you know, place, place to be. Um, and, you know, one would imagine that by virtue of geography alone, people would you know, ideas and people would kind of stay out. <laughs> I was just thinking too about sacred mountains. I wonder if there was a period where it's sort of transitioned. Like the, you can see why a mountain makes sense. It's closer to the gods and they must've been kind of strange and frightening places with sudden changes of weather right. and rarefied air. But there are cultures that place the home of the gods on the mountains. And then mm -hmm. it, it sort of shifts to the mountain itself becoming a sacred place or a holy place. So so Mount Olympus, you know, the home of the gods versus like Shintoism that holds the the land itself as uh, having sacred qualities or Kailash in, in Tibet. I wonder if that shifted at a certain point when people began to get up to those places and see that you know, the gods didn't actually live there. Yeah, well, I think um, you know, Kailash, you mentioned Kailash. I think that's that hasn't been summited yet out of respect. No, they just yeah, walk around yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Huh? The pilgrimage goes mm -hmm. around it. Yeah. But I think in, in Kailash, I think, you know, there's some traditions that actually believe that, you know, that's the abode of Shiva, right? So, you know, associated with divinity or the actual home of the gods, I think, you know, these, you know, these are variations of a theme. I'm thinking here about the Mayan pyramids, for example, kind of modeled on, on the shape of the mountain, right? Uh, as a place, as a high point to get as close to God or the divine as possible. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Right. In, in an absolutely flat setting, they they build an artificial mountain to to reach right. the divine. Yeah, yeah. 
artificial mountains. Yes, manufactured mountains. It's it, it's it's quite interesting. Um, you know, and and so that's happening. You know, trying to connect this idea of the universality of the idea, or maybe the universality of this idea. But you know, we were just talking about the Mayans um, building pyramids, and you know, I'm thinking back to the Sumerians, right? With um, with the ziggurats, mm -hmm. right? You know, around the Tigris and the Euphrates River. I mean, it's kind of a, from what I understand, a relatively flat place that you know these civilizations are building pyramids. You know, the Tower of Babel. You know, going up because that's you know God is somewhere above up there. So, was there a reason that you chose this specific festival to to attend or this specific mountain? Yeah, timing, timing. Really, um, there's a pilgrimage that people go on to the sacred mountain once a year in in august around mid-august august august 15th and with my sabbatical and the timing and all that i mean that's part of the reason why i went to bolivia here too is because of the timing like this would be my only chance really with between my teaching and all my other obligations for me to to go see this 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 town is a town called kiakoyo and it's it's quite a big town but it's a town that no one has really heard of it's its bigger brother, I guess, is a, a town about 30 minutes east called Cochabamba. And maybe people have heard of that. Kiyokoyo is, you know, this it's 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 in the same valley, the Cochabamba Valley, you know, in kind of the foothills of the Andes, 8,000, 8,500 feet um, foothills, right? For for me from Florida, that's like really high, right? Uh, but for them, that's you know, not even getting up there. But there's this beautiful little valley, you know, surrounded by the Scordillera. Um, but at the southern part of Kiyokoyo, there's a hill that for many, many, many years, um, according to the scholars, was like a kind of a sacred hill. Um, some of the scholars would point out to this idea in, um, in the Andes of, of a huaca. And what that is, is just like kind of like this sacred sacred space so like a, a the peak of a mountain might be a huaca or like a spring or a cave or something like that like this natural phenomena as like sacred space um on the hill um south of this town there was reportedly this huaca this sacred uh spring which the native andeans kind of visited on their on their own right and over the course of years, perhaps we'll get to this, you know, um, this became associated with, after the Catholics came, it came, became associated with the Virgin Virgin Mary. So now, you know, in 2022, which is when I went, 2023, it just the pilgrimage just ended a few weeks ago. You know, we have this kind of interesting syncretism or, or blend of pre-Catholic indigenous ideas with Catholic ideas. Yeah, you wrote about uh, shaman blessing people and objects on the hill itself, but there didn't seem yeah. to be any sign of priests up there. That was the Catholic um, side of it confined to to the town below and the churches. It's a complicated question. Um, you know, if you can imagine a hill, and then at the very top of the hill, this is where kind of a lot of the action happens. But on the slopes leading up to the hill, um, there is a Catholic shrine, a sanctuary. There's a little chapel there where people, you know, take candles and, you know, burn candles. Um, but if you go beyond the chapel and the shrine, you, you can walk up these paths to a different part of the hill where there's kind of different things, let's say, um, going on. Of course, in the main town, there is a cathedral, you know, an important uh, cathedral. And of course, the priests go to the chapels and the shrines. But you're right. I didn't see... As soon as you walk up the hill past the shrine in the chapel, I didn't see any priest or anyone, you know, associated with, you know, the, the religious institution, the Catholic institution um, up there. That's not to say that they're not there, but I just didn't uh, spot any of them. But I remember one day I was in uh, Cochabamba. It was a few days before the festival and I was in the main square, the main public square in front of the the church and you know i was just kind of relaxing trying to catch my breath and there was a performer in the square uh, two performers a, a man and a woman and you know they had a keyboard set up and you know this guy had 
um, a mic hooked up to this old kind of distorting speaker. And, you know, they're playing religious songs, he on the, on the keyboard and she singing. And when they were done with songs, in between songs, he would take the mic and, you know, lob these fiery Jeremiads at the crowd about, um, about Pachamama and about the celebrations that were about to happen. It, it was wonderful to hear him because he was so expressive. You know, he was saying, you're going to burn in hell, ay, 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 that kind of thing. Um, you know, but his point was well taken, right? This idea, you know, he's, he's a devout Catholic that's very resistant to the encroachment of these Andean ideas and the blending of them with, with Catholicism. So officially, you know, the official Catholic idea in, in Bolivia is, is what you would find perhaps in, in Rome, but in terms of like pop, popular religion or the lived religion, most of the people, at least the ones that I saw, you know, don't make a distinction between Catholic and, and pagan or Pachamama and, and Mother Mary. I found the sheer variety of votive offerings really interesting as well. Like you, you described the usual arms and legs <laughs> and again, crutches and spectacles that you would find at, at a site of pilgrimage, but there are also mm -hmm. shops and not just shops, but specific types of shops. Yeah. That's very precise. Yeah. 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 yeah no, no, it was, it, you know, this was about the assumptions, right? Um, so. Uh, I think you're referring to the the Alasita vendors yes, yeah, yeah. on the hill itself. Yeah. So um, Alasitas are kind of these miniature objects. You know, so like miniature baby, miniature tire shop, miniature bakery, miniature passport, miniature credit cards, birth certificates, diplomas, miniature cash, you name it. Right. Any things of of perceived value there are miniature objects of of those of those things and the idea they're called alasitas which um is which literally means in, in the native language buy me and so the idea is that we buy these objects right as a way to wish or pray for the real things that they represent and this is a tradition that we find also in in la paz there's this big kind of alasitas festival there but that has kind of I don't know if it's originated in La Paz and spread to Kiyokoyo or the inverse, but it's we see the we see this tradition in, in both places. And during the festival, of course, people would walk down the streets and on their way to this, you know, holy holy mountain, the sacred mountain, you know, to to go to the sanctuary of the Virgin Mary, and then beyond that to go see Pachamama. You know, they they would you know be presented or they would approach all of these shops to buy things in order to make a bundle uh, for a ceremony to ask or wish for those for those items. You know, you have this image of like the Bolivian Cholita woman with the um, the cloth on her back carrying potatoes or a child, right? That, that cloth is called the aguayo. And even they have a miniature one of that in which to bundle the alacitas or the, the objects, which um, get blessed. Um, sometimes they uh, get engulfed and in, 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 immersed in like, incense. Um, sometimes they get set on, you know, set ablaze. They get burnt and then get get buried. Um, but there's this kind of ritual aspect of it. And, and the fascinating thing is that you know sometimes people are like pouring holy water on that, or you know, putting like a crucifix in there, or you know, praying to God that. You know, Pachamama will, will you know, they, they will receive these things from the earth that they give to the earth. Yeah, it's very interesting. The specificity of it was really, really interesting. That's a very, <laughs> some very clear envisioning. So tell, tell me about this business of breaking rocks. That's also very strange. At the, at the foot of the hill, there's a gate, right? this beautiful gate. And then you walk in and there's like this little tended garden at the bottom, like a garden of Eden. As you ascend the hill, you'll encounter the sanctuary and then the chapel and then beyond that there are these two paths one left and one right that go to the summit and at the summit you'll find all of these shops and, and people selling those objects but you'll also find these things called um, mines they call them minas mines and if you can picture i don't know if you can like imagine if you're looking down bird's eye view onto like Moroccan tanneries. You can see these pits. But imagine instead of of that, like you're looking down on, you know, this like honeycomb of 
swimming pools, these large swimming pool pits. And inside of each swimming pool are these, you know, massive boulders, right? And sometimes uh, the boulders were, you know, the size of a beanbag or something, but sometimes they were huge, like bigger than, than a human, right? Massive boulders. And that's everywhere on the top of this hill. You know, it's like a, it's like a hive, you know, like a beehive up there of, of mines everywhere. And so part of the tradition during this, and, and sometimes um, also not during the pilgrimage, but the activity intensifies during the pilgrimage, I'm told, um, you know, you go into the mine in order to break off a stone. And so you, you take these sledgehammers, you know, you form a ritual, drink a little beer, pour some beer out to Pachamama, and you start hitting one of these stones. And the idea is that you want to break off a, a large chunk of stone because that means you're being favored, right? This is, a, a, this is sort of a gift. And this idea kind of traces back to the legend of the pilgrimage that went on. Um, maybe I should uh, talk about that for a second. I don't know why, but for some reason, if you, if you think about like the, the Marian apparitions around the world, right? They, they, they tend to happen on mountains, right? Um, and they tend to, to, Mary tends to present herself to like peasants or shepherds or, you know, people of the mountains. Um, so we have one in like Mexico, right? The Virgin of Guadalupe. We have in France, like Virgin of Lourdes, uh, Mary of Lourdes, Fatima of Portugal, everywhere, right? It seems. Uh, and we all, there's also one in, in, in Bolivia, the Virgin of Urcupina. So according to the, to the legend, 17th century legend, 18th century legend, I'm sorry, a shepherd girl was on the hill tending her flock, her livestock when she saw Mary and, and baby Jesus. And there are different versions of the legend, but one of the legends is that um, Mary gifts the child some stones, some, some rocks, uh, which later transform to either gold or silver, according to some accounts, or you know more livestock. From that legend, there is this tradition to go up to this hill and smash these stones because these are symbols of, you know, material prosperity, right? It's, it's in that tradition that, you know, people, the devout go up there to break these stones in hopes that, you know, they will receive some material prosperity um, as part of this ritual, as part of this pilgrimage. It, it almost seems like there's an element of sacrifice to it as well, right? Like you have to sacrifice something, the sweat of the sweat of your brow, the blisters on your hands to, to earn yeah. this, uh, this grace. Absolutely. Like the more, you know, the, the idea is like, you know, the more devout you are, the bigger stone you get, right? Um, which is maybe a perversion because, I mean, that stone is really hard to break. I saw some guy um, kind of trying to smash up a stone and his, with a sledgehammer and the head of the sl sledgehammer popped off, you know, he was drenched in sweat. He couldn't even break off a shard that he was comfortable with. Um, so there is a this kind of physical act of kind of giving this penance you know given uh, in in doing that and it's also like associated too with like the dancing there's uh we didn't talk about this yet but there's um a festival uh, a parade associated with uh, you know this pilgrimage and it's a massive kind of parade and festival uh, but you know you think about like high altitude parade you know people wearing these heavy uh costumes and these heavy outfits blowing into uh, pan pipes or, you know, brass instruments and twirling and dancing for miles at 8,500 feet altitude or whatever that is in, in meters, uh, 2,500, whatever. I mean, there's like this physical intensity that's required in this performance of piety. The, the physical demands in dancing and performing in the festival, the physical demands required to get up to the hill and break off some stones, uh, you know, that's, that's nothing to take lightly. And it, there's the physical, the connection to the physical, um, physical rituals and how they shift you into this other space, you know, into, into the, to the mm -hmm. sacred through, through uh, repetitive motions through and trance work. And, and work. Yeah. yeah. So you, yeah, yeah. you wrote that um, the Hill of the Skull is a place that makes you question your own beliefs and faith. 
It makes you call into question whether the customs and rituals carried out on its slopes are absurd, or if your own lack of faith will cost you and your loved ones. Do you think you need to be a believer to go on a pilgrimage or to benefit from one? Well, I mean, I certainly didn't. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, believer and, um, and yet I, I got pulled into kind of this work, this ritual that, that you were speaking about. I, you know, I think in, in some respects you need to be, a, you know, a Catholic or part of that cosmovision, the, the, the blending of Catholic and Andean ideas you need to be part of that world in some respects to, to engage with that, you know, that world or at least accepting of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that's where all the value is, right? Um, you know, an atheist, you know, like me, you, you know, going on this pilgrimage, getting sucked into this pilgrimage in, in some ways wasn't about religion, but was about reflecting on on suffering and and reflecting on on hope. So yeah, I don't think you need to be religious to 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 go on a pilgrimage or, you know, think about pilgrimage as a secular act. No, the physical act itself is transformative, yeah. I think. So did it, did you come away with different beliefs afterwards or did it change your, your thinking or how you see the world in any way? Yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, you know, I, I find myself not just a, a skeptic, but, and this is going to come out weird, but like I sometimes like very suspicious and skeptical of people's religious experiences. After having gone to Bolivia and, you know, rubbing shoulders with other pilgrims and speaking with them, like I, I got to, I changed my mind about it in some ways, like in some ways, like I think that, you know, personally we're talking about hope and you know, what, what good is praying and what good is hope and, you know, shouldn't you actually be doing something about it? You, there are those questions, but you know, the, the prayers and the rituals were, were giving people comfort. Right. And we're having some sort of value on, on, on that level. And so I don't want to, 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 to judge too harshly, you know, people, um, and, and how they process things and, and deal with their religious experiences. I mean, I think that was one of the, the big takeaways, uh, for me personally, personal transformation, those types of re revelations, I think come to, to us by participating in these pilgrimages. So the image of the wasteland comes up often in both your writing and in the photos. You open with an epilogue by T.S. Eliot, and when writing about the hill, you describe it as unremarkable, uninviting, desolate, forsaken. It is a wasteland, you say, and it is magical. What is it about that image that obsesses you? Ah, oh, yeah, that 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 poem by Eliot is 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 just wonderful. You know, the wasteland as a metaphor of of, of humanity of of life. Right? There's just uh, so much there. What obsesses me about that image, um, you know, had a lot to do with what I was going through um, personally at that point in time. You know, this is kind of me going on a research trip to, you know, to, to do, to do the scholarly work. Um, but behind the scenes, you know, we all are, are suffering in, in some ways. And at this point of my, my life and on that trip, you know, I was having a hard time. Like I felt like I was a character in a T.S. Eliot poem, right? I was like a hollowed man. I was living in a wasteland. And, you know, this metaphor kept on coming back to me. You know, I walk up to this desolate area and I, you know, I see desolation. I see suffering. You know, it's hard to, to see pilgrims dealing with, with loss and asking for you know, abundance and it's hard to see those things. So this idea of like the wasteland, um, abundance, uh, hope and suffering, uh, feeling hollowed and unfulfilled, you know, this imagery, it was very much part of my lived experience. And, and in Bolivia, it's, it seems like, you know, those, those no notions were, were following me and haunting me while I was there. You also captured this really well in in the photos too, the hill itself, like you describe it as a vantage point overlooking a plain where sacred and profane meet, where the veil is thin. And this whole concept of liminal spaces is interesting. And for those unfamiliar with it, 
um, it's in anthropology, it's often associated with rites of passage. So the classical anthropologists like um, Arnold Van Gennep, he, he wrote a book, Rites of mm. Passage, and um, Victor Turner, uh, The Forest of Symbols. These liminal space and rites of passage describe a sort of an in-between stage where the participant in the ritual is uh, no longer what they were before, but they haven't yet become the new thing either. And, you know, social hierarchies are dissolved. Maybe even the stable self is dissolved and things become fluid and malleable. The Jungians uh, applied this concept also to times of transition, like a midlife transition or a crisis in the cliche would be seen as a time of liminality where the individual kind of goes through a turbulent period of self-realization. So it's, it's, it's interesting how the place and what you saw in it reflects also the state that you were going through at the time in your personal space. And that, that you happen to be drawn right to this place of, of liminality, you know, in this place where the sort of the veil is thin between, uh, between the sacred and the profane. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. You know, this, this, um, this study, I'm also drawing a lot from the Romanian uh, scholar of comparative religion, um, Mircea Eliade. He talks about this as well. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you, you're absolutely right. Like, you, you know, this idea of, of liminal spaces where, you know, you, those paths that I mentioned before, one leading to the left and the other one leading to the right. And the one leading to the right is is kind of a cleaner path. Um, you know, literally, it's, it wasn't as dirty as the, as, as the left path, but it was also, it was kind of open. If you take the left, left path, um, and I... I see like the sinister kind of reference here then with, with the left, you know, this is where, where the shaman and the Atiri and the Almatas they're called and the, the people who, who, um, you know, douse you with incense and libations and things like that. They're all amassed on the, the left flank, the left path. And as you walk up this path, you know, there's, you just, you have no choice, but to be enveloped by, Palo Santo in incense and to, you know, walk among the other pilgrims, right? This is, this is not like just a casual stroll up a mountain. Like you get draw, drawn into that. You have no choice but to, to be a part of, of that, even as an observer, right? It, the, the, the dirt and the smoke and the confetti, all of that kind of goes on you, right? It, it, kind of penetrates your clothes and you you emerge at the top of the hill kind of cleansed in some in some way in some ritualistic way even if you don't realize it you you can't get that off of you and it lingers back home you smell the the incense still and it follows you around it haunts you you know so i think you're absolutely right to make those two points that um it's fascinating that you know here i was at a point in my life yeah, kind of the, this midlife point where I'm questioning things, and I, I go to this kind of mid midpoint on the hill where I'm trying to to pass through from one side uh, to another. And, and beautiful metaphors, uh, beautiful met metaphors there. But I think, yeah, definitely kind of a liminal space between uh, you know the 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 mundane and and the, div the divine. And as an atheist, like I, I still think I'm floating. <laughs> in some liminal space like it completely makes sense because our own society lacks these spaces and rituals that help us navigate through these kind of transitions um, especially with the decline of traditional religion that's one thing that traditional mm -hmm. religion brought was these practices physical practices or ritual practices you know we have rights like marriage or which has sort of become a civic contract or a legal contract rather than a, a right then it's easily dissolved right. now i wonder if that's partly why so many uh, people feel lost or disconnected or or even trapped in adolescence, like it's difficult to move beyond these um, stages of life when, when there's no clear demarcation point and no guidance. So uh, I could see how pilgrimage could be one one approach to it, whether you invent your own or you go on an existing pilgrimage and use this as a space mm -hmm. to sort of yeah navigate that that transition, that sort of life changes. Yeah, the 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 rite of passage, right, uh, of becoming uh, you know a man or a woman. You know, I think you're absolutely right to say that modern uh, society has uh, tried to to rid ourselves from those types of things, although many traditions still hold on to them. Very important, I think, 
you know, even as someone who is not, you know, not religious, you know, there is benefit in having traditions and being connected um, or, you know, seeking uh, answers to, to, to questions through traditions and through uh, secular rituals. I mean, I think, you know, that we could, we could do well by those ideas. Yeah. I think it's not so much that we destroy them, but that it's sort of a byproduct of like Nietzsche's death of God. When, when you, you chuck mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that sort of belief out the window, we also don't realize that we're losing all these other things as well. Things that used to anchor people's lives. And, you know, there are, there've been attempts to come up with this secular humanist sort of versions of this, which ends up being um, shrines to science and all this kind of stuff. It just doesn't work in the same way. That's, it's missing something. Mm-hmm. There's a philosopher, John Gray, who I really like, my favorite thinker. And he wrote a book called Feline Philosophy, like what we can learn from cats. <laughs> sort of a uh, kind of a funny book because he talk, he says um, cats have no need of philosophy. You know, they just can live in the present and enjoy enjoy their life such as it is without worrying about it. But at the end, he kind of gives some prescriptions for how to have an enjoyable or, or happy life. And he said, if you um, if you're kind of feeling lost or or you can't live with the fact that it's all for nothing and it's whatever you make of it, uh, then pick, take up a religion, but preferably one with a lot of physical practices and ritual practices, because there's value in the ritual itself. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And you, you were mentioning Nietzsche, and, and it, it reminds me of that classic uh, Marx quote, where, I uh, forget where he wrote this, but he talks about like, you know, this is the modern world, this is globalization, this is what capitalism capitalism does. It, you know, all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy becomes profane. And through other kind of forces, this is what Marx is saying, you know, the traditional world uh, gets destroyed. And, you know, whether that's true, um, that's another thing, but it's a, a beautiful image, nonetheless. There's much to be said for prosperity and material prosperity, but it, at the same time, it doesn't give meaning. and neither does the accumulation of things like you quickly realize that that just doesn't uh, apart from the accumulation of books which i i have to say that's (laughs) we can make an exception for that (laughs) but one one, another interesting another thing that interested me too about uh, the essay that that you included in the book you talked about um, failed projects and how you were kind of despairing early on that the this project just didn't get off the ground and i wonder if the problem is the pre-planned like from your description you you seem to have in mind the type and style and even the subject of the photos that you would make, but the journey only really opened up for you when you began to let that go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's part of part of that, but and also anticipation, right? Like I think I was putting too much weight on this project um, and what I was trying to do. I was putting too much hope into it. I was placing too much importance on it. I was trying to pre-visualize everything so that I wouldn't waste any time. Everything, you know, had its own place, right? It was kind of this structured thing. And you're absolutely right to say that uh, when I realized that my plans had fallen through, that's when things for me opened up. And and, and in this very kind of curious way, um, just... For, for the listeners to get a little bit of a backstory, like I went there with a few projects. I went to Bolivia with a few kind of goals or projects in mind. One was just like research, to do research for the larger mountain project that I had. But while I was in Kiyokoyo, I had this kind of grand idea to take photographs of some of the the dresses, you know, the traditional dresses as kind of like a record or a document, you know, that kind of thing. And I had everything kind of mapped out. I had everything planned. Um, and I thought for sure that I would kind of go in and, 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 and succeed. But, you know, it was in hindsight, it was, it was completely naive for me to think that I could pull off a project like this in a country that I'd never been to. And, you know, there's a lot of problems with it. But as soon as I realized that my, my plans had fallen through, it was like I was given kind of a new a new path to walk to walk down a new a new mission and i, I got reconnected with i don't know the, the, i don't want to sound too woo about it but you know it was like this idea like i failed i had a sense of like resignation and then like i found my my way while i was there because of 
letting go of, of those preconceived projects that I had. Yeah, no, there's nothing new agey about that at all. I think that's travel is very much like that. Like there's a tyranny to the pre-planned. Yeah. Um, and those kind of experiences yeah. only happen if you just sit and wait for a person or a direction or a shaman to appear. I thought a lot about this kind of thing when I first started writing um, yeah. long narrative features for travel magazines. Like I do, I do a lot of reading to figure out what interested me about a place and where the stories might be, but but the, the main hook would never end up being there. That sort of uh, key poetic insight that would anchor the the story for me mm-hmm. um, and unlock a place for me. I knew that I always had to just go there and wait for that to appear and to trust that it would. And that's a bit of a. a uh, an anxious feeling when when you're there on somebody else's dime, but it always did. It always showed up. So yeah. realizing that you just can't impose your own agenda and just stepping back and uh, waiting for, and being receptive and, yeah. and open and just kind of watching and waiting for some strange character to appear or a shaman to appear out of the incense, like you describe at the end. Yeah, you know, I I, I suppose I could have written a different story. Like I could have written a story that talks about you know this very cold historical story that talks about the religions and the religion that talks about history and it talks about culture, you know, that kind of work I could have, I could have pulled out, but you know, this, when you mentioned this poetic insight, I mean, I think those types of things you can't necessarily plan as you're, as you're saying, right. They, those poetic insights come to you, right. And it's like calling on the muses, so to speak, right. You invoke something else. You can't plan that. And that's what's so exciting about it. That's you what makes it so enjoyable. Yeah. And it, it would the the book would be a completely different book had I not chosen to write about that serendipity, uh, that that chance encounter, that uh, that moment where I, I let go. Like I, that that story was that experience was was calling me right to to write about. I started when I was writing putting this thing together, I had, you know, 15,000 really dry words, right? Kind of really dry kind of historical and cultural and, you know, quite by the book. And if you ask me a little bit, a little bit boring, you know, but there is this part of the story that kept on calling me back. This is where the soul of the story is, right? And so I decided to kind of scrap all that other, some of the, I have some of the historical and cultural in, in, in the book, right? But um, that's not what the story is about, right? The story is not the history. It's about, you know, this serendipitous moment, uh, you know, the moment where I became pilgrim. So did nailing down that story, uh, then shape the, your selection of images? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I had twice as many, twice as many images, um, as I, as I do now in the book. And it also, you know, dictated or helped me arrange the images in a certain way, right? The images that you'll see in the book are not in order of chronology, right? They're, I was trying to tell a story through the images of going to the mountains, going to the sacred hill, going down into the city, to the church, and then back to the hill for the rituals. And they're arranged in such a way because that's kind of what happens in the story a little bit. It's interesting how when you're working on a project like this, you know, how, you know, one thing that you didn't intend to write about becomes the interesting part, right? And how that kind of takes over and, you know, that concept or that idea guides everything along in, in such an interesting and cohesive way. It, it takes on a life of its own, it, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just have to let it take over. So you mentioned Alice Tomlinson and um, August Sander mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as photographers that you really liked. What was it about their work that inspired you? Um, yeah, so um, August Sander, uh, he's um, an old photographer um, who used to uh, take pictures. You know, these you know massive cameras as they were back then. These large format cameras of 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 people, right? Uh, the people being the central focus the people in their everyday presumably everyday lives in their everyday dress the people of the crowd the people of the here and now or the then and there right um and he for me i i get the sense that he he captures a moment right a moment in time that's that's now that's now long lost 
um, Alice Thomas, and she is a contemporary photographer, British contemporary photographer. And she's doing similar things as August Sander did. Um, she's taking pictures of her recent book is called um, Lisolani, the Islanders, where she goes to islands around Italy, like island, like Sicily, and takes uh, images of people in their kind of traditional dress in these very beautiful ways using a large format uh, camera. And there's something interesting about capturing the world in this documentary style and, and taking it serious. It's not like a snapshot like a tourist might take of somebody in costume, but this is like treating the subject and the culture in a very serious way that interested me. You know, we don't often see that in, in kind of travel photography, certainly. Um, I guess sometimes you do, but not the, you know, the, the, the tourist uh, photographer, you don't really see it in that kind of way. This dignified, respectful, grave, the serious, respectful way that, uh, that an image sometimes demands. We see that in her work and, you know, in August Sanders work. And this was like something that I was trying to emulate when I was in, in Bolivia. Like I wanted to take these types of images uh, of the costumes and of the people uh, while I was there. But it proved to be, I guess, uh, far more difficult than, than it sounds. We had some really good photos of Shaman in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very dignified looking. And there's this sort of power that emanates from them. You can see this. Yeah, we talk about like, you know, poetic insights and, and you know, those, those special moments that just grab you. And I remember in particular, one of the first shaman that I took a, a photo of, um, you know, just kind of asked him and he said, you know, it, I, I should preface this with, um, I asked a lot of people to, if I could make their photos and their portraits. And I was met by a lot of rejections. Like people were really suspicious of me for some reason. But this the shaman that I, that I went up to after an, an entire day of rejection, he just said, okay. You know, I, I felt I felt this connection with him as he let me make his portrait, you know, and this image, you know, his, his face is this image. It's, it's one that stays with you or it stayed with me a little bit. I was thinking about it all day and all night. Um, part of the narrative, you know, I, I get a, an email from a friend who had asked me to get a ceremony um, a shaman to do a ceremony for her daughter who had a brain tumor. And this shaman was the, I just knew it. Like this was the guy who needed to do, to do that ceremony. So from that point on in the book, it becomes, you know, a quest to, to find him. But yeah, the, the, the power of, 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 of these images are, are there's something real. I think they, they stick with you. They, they remain with you or they did. For me, certainly. So you close your essay with some thoughts about hope. You say, hope is not the result of suffering. It is its root cause. So why did you invert that? This was a hard book for me to write in, in a lot of ways because it helped me, you know, process, right? A lot of things that I'd, I'd, I'd been suffering with in terms of my marriage and in terms of uh, my work um, and just in, in terms of, of life. and. I was thinking when I was on the Hill of the Skull in, in Bolivia about how much suffering there was. Because I think, you know, when we put too much hope in things, right, we begin to, to suffer out of the expectation that our hopes will be met. You know, I'm, I'm thinking here now, um, and I didn't write about this in the book, but I, I, you know, I think here about kind of the Buddhist tradition and you know, this idea of suffering and, and desire, right? And this is essentially uh, one of the Four Noble Truths that we, that we suffer because of our, our desires. And attachments, yeah. And attachments and our desires. And, you know, I find that hope is, is a form of, of desire. It's not a you know, material thing, but it certainly is a, a desire. Put so much hope on my projects and in my work and, and on, you know, I just put this hope in this, and in, in virtue of putting the hope, having so much hope, you know, this places a certain degree of pressure and suffering when ultimately 
those hopes remain unfulfilled. That Buddhist attachment is interesting too, because it's, it's when you release that attachment to the outcome that things actually open up for you and you maybe you get a result you didn't expect. Right. And that's yeah. a beautiful uh, tie in here with what you were saying about the, the poetic insights. I wish I had thought about that yeah. when I was writing the book. It's still, it's still time. It's still time. You can have that one. So, so to, to cite John Gray again, he said in a recent podcast interview that hope isn't necessarily optimism. Hope can be going on because you never know what comes next and it may be better. I really like that idea. You know, it's, it's not a blind optimism, but it's, it's just going on anyway, because what comes afterwards, there's every chance that it could be better. No, I just wonder if, 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 if hope is, is different than acceptance, you know, this idea of abiding, um, hope seems to me a bit more active than, you know, accepting it's, yeah, it's not passive. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's Beckett, you know, I can't go on. I will go on. Right. Right. So how can listeners get a copy of the Hill of the Skull? Well, uh, the Hill of the Skull, uh, you can get a copy by going to jeremybassetti.com forward slash skull. And if you go there, that will take you to the Kickstarter campaign. So I'm crowdfunding this book. I think as you can tell, the, the book is it's not a traditional book. Um, there, there are words. There's a, a 7,000 word uh, memoir. And there are, I don't know, 50 or so images. There's um, an afterword by Pico Iyer and a kind of dialogue that I had with Alice Tomlinson, the phot photographer who we just spoke about, untraditional, atypical book. Um, and so I'm kind of obliged to, to kickstart it, to crowdfund it. And there's no other way that I can really publish it without, without that. So on... If you go to jeremybassetti.com forward slash skull, that will take you to the Kickstarter page where um, until late October, um, you can support a copy, which will go, the proceeds will go into producing this beautiful hardcover uh, limited edition uh, book. Yeah, it's an interesting model. And I'll be curious to see where you, where you go with it. I know some musicians who use this approach to bring bring their music directly mm -hmm. to the the people who want to hear it. And some of these guys went the big record label route in the eighties, you know, and they often ended up at, after the parties were over, they had very little to show for it. So this, I, this whole crowdfunding thing is a really cool um, throwback to earlier publishing models. That's that I think is, is innovative and interesting and quite promising. Yeah. We'll see, you know, we're going back to this idea of hope, like I'm putting a lot of hope <laughs> in, in the success of this project, but it's, it's one of those things that, You'll never really know um, what happens uh, with it, but you're right. It's an interesting model, especially with what's going on in the publishing uh, world and the publishing industry now. I think more and more writers and publishers are interested in this sort of independent route. Um, it gives them more power. It has the potential to give them more cash in the pocket if, if things go well. It seems to be uh quite interesting for the for the writer for the creator for the photographer well thank you for your time jeremy and for this interesting glimpse into bolivia a country i'm very curious about and i really like this this whole uh liminal space and uh pilgrimage concepts that's that's right up my alley so very interesting well thank you for um having me and i would just say here like huge fan of the the podcast and um i'm just so grateful uh to to speak with you Oh, it's an absolute pleasure.